0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow
1: and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTrade's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Today is Monday the 7th of September. I have learned this year to timestamp our recordings because things change. Well, as we know, it has been a wild year in markets. I feel like I open the same way with every recording at the moment. Things are just a little bit mad. And we're trying to help everyone make sense of what's going on. In our last recording, one of Australia's leading fund managers predicted some very dark days ahead, Uh, and many of our investors certainly fear they're right. We're seeing our cash balances climb again, but to give a different perspective, today I'm joined by Anthony Doyle, cross-asset specialist at Fidelity International, who looks at markets across all sorts of different asset classes and all over the world. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks for inviting me back. Of course. Of course we would have you back. So Anthony, talk to me about how the team at Fidelity are viewing the world right now. You guys are based in Boston, in London, in Hong Kong. You've got teams in most major financial centres and you cover not just equities, but also fixed income and other assets. How are you feeling right now?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really extraordinary, isn't it? If you think uh, back to only 12 months ago, the global economy was expanding pretty nicely, Unemployment rates around the world were you know close to all time lows. If we think about the U.S., I mean Australia had an unemployment rate with a five handle on it, and uh, the outlook for this year was was really one where uh, we continue to see a a broad based rally in equity markets, but certainly no no recession um, on the horizon, particularly from a global perspective. And then of course, COVID nineteen. I think we were hearing. You know news articles about Wuhan and uh, this spread of this sort of influenza or pneumonia type virus um, within within China, and I think we we're all pretty astounded at, at the lockdown measures that the authorities had taken. And then all of a sudden, it was all like all hell broke loose. Um, cases were popping up in Iran, and it was really accelerating in Italy. And we saw that you know the fastest sell-off in history in terms of a bear market um, with equity markets in particular, and of course the extraordinary. Stimulus packages that then came from from monetary authorities, but also fiscal authorities. So, uh, in, in order to contain the spread of the virus, uh, the authorities put the global economy into recession. And uh, you know, we're still very much working at and in the uh, emergency room at the moment. With many of us still working from home, um, a lot of people on on support, like job keeper packages, for example. Businesses also getting uh, support from from fiscal governments as well. So, truly an extraordinary unprecedented time that I think we'll all look back on Um, and it may indeed be very formative for for the years ahead and I think a lot of us whilst we're living in the moment at the moment uh, you're going to find that uh, there'll be an extraordinary amount of change that will come about um, as a result of the current sort of lockdown crisis that we find ourselves in.
1: You're absolutely right it's been such an extraordinary period and also it's Required so many of us to change our behaviour in so many ways and very, very quickly. Let's talk about the US. It's a very partisan country. We get far more news out of the US than we used to. A lot of Australians follow. Uh, American politics and uh, many other things pretty closely. It's much more riven country along political lines than Australia. COVID's become a massive political issue there, which is quite extraordinary, along with being a health crisis, obviously. Are you concerned about geopolitical risks in the US?
0: Yeah. So it's a, a known unknown that we have coming up, right, as well as Brexit at the end of the year, um, which will be quite um, formative in terms of obviously very formative for the relationship between the UK and Europe as well. So all of us in in investment markets, you know, we are aware of this election coming up. We know that it's going to be quite different in terms of people might not be able to vote in person. So they'll be mailing in their votes. We may not have a result as quickly as has historically been the case. We also know that again, as I mentioned, you know we're in unprecedented times. Um, so it's been difficult historically for an incumbent president to win whilst the economy is in recession. But we also know uh, President Trump's popularity is quite closely aligned with equity market performance. Um, and we know how, how that's performed, um, the S&P 500 in particular this year, as a result of this extraordinary stimulus that we've seen. So, you know, it's very difficult to to try and assess what the outcome of the US election will be. But you have to acknowledge that there will be volatility because markets don't like uncertainty, and you know, that's a bit of a, a cliche that that um, that saying. But uh, you know, there are things that you can do around it in terms of thinking about um, ways to to protect your portfolio against rising volatility, thinking about what the outcomes might be, whether it's a democratic sweep or a republican sweep or potentially a mix and how markets may react in that type of environment. Um, So there are a number of ways, you know, looking at polls, um, which have historically not been a good indicator. um, But, you know, our political analysts in London has told me that they've worked very hard in improving those polls, Betting markets, you know, have historically been um, a pretty good indicator. But again, you know, looking at the volume of bets as opposed to just the the large uh, the large amount of money that may be being wagered in one way or another. So, what Aussie investors should really consider going forward is we are going to likely experience an environment of heightened volatility and how they may react in such an environment, given the price fluctuations that they're likely to see um with their with their investments
1: so volatility is something that everyone's gotten used to this year it's been quite interesting and there, there was a lot of uh talk over the last few years about how volatility had been at record lows for a really long time and there was a real concern that investors would panic when they started seeing real price shifts for the first time. You know, If you'd started investing for the first time in 2016, 17, 18, you'd seen some volatility but not a lot, nothing like mm. 2008, 2009. Uh, and we found with our investors that it was actually – astonishing how well prepared retail investors were for volatility. Uh, The price falls, they saw as an opportunity. They're very well trained to buy the dip now. So it's been really interesting to observe how people have responded to volatility. What I find a little bit nerve-wracking is people have had this marvellous experience, to be honest. They'd be buying really aggressively through March and April when markets had fallen really heavily. They've had this fabulous bounce. They've actually done really well if there is another period of volatility, and we have to assume there will be one at some point, and there's a grind down, that's a really different experience. You know, losing money every day over a long period is very different to losing a lot of money really quickly. So it would be interesting to uh, to see how it plays out.
0: Yeah. I mean, bear markets historically have taken between six and nine months, you know, to get that 20% down level. Uh, I think this took 16 days. Yeah. So, you know, really unprecedented. And uh, I guess a lot of us in investment markets are trying to marry the experience of the real economy and that at which, you know, central bank, the central bank put essentially um, has been driving markets, you know, this technical flood of money um, and where do investors go? So during this whole um, last six months that I've been working from home, I found it um, really encouraging, as you know. You know, I returned from London about eighteen months ago to see the reaction of retail investors and financial advisors, and even institutional clients. In particular, it wasn't a uh, a rush to sell equities, but rather, a lot of people were saying, "When do I time? How do I get into the market?" Is now the right time? I was being asked um, during all these. Client meetings, um, as opposed to the investor, um, the investor behaviour that I've seen offshore in, say, Southern European nations, or um, other countries around Europe, where any sort of volatility like that, and you've got investors selling risk assets and piling into fixed income very, very quickly. So, the Australian investor experience um, during that that period of crisis, during March and April in particular. I thought was extremely interesting and suggests again that, you know, investors in Australia are attuned and you know, we typically have a higher allocation to risk assets via the Australian equity market than we do to fixed income. So they're aware of higher volatility. Um, but we have to acknowledge now, you know, it's a whole different ballgame for Aussie investors as well with our, our cash rate being at an all-time low, um, much like the rest of the, the developed markets. Um, historically, we've had a much higher cash rate, which is tended to insulate Aussie investors um, during these periods of of crisis as well.
1: So one of the points you made is that, you know, it's obviously been such a sharp sell-off. People piled in because things were suddenly 30% less expensive than they were two weeks before. That happened astonishingly quickly. What has also been astonishing is how quickly it's bounced back. Australia hasn't bounced back as aggressively as the US, but in the US you're making record highs again. Six months after they uh, had the sharpest, Bear market in history. And that's the other thing that I think, uh, as I said, retail investors have done really, really well in this environment. But the likelihood of that happening is so incredibly small. We haven't ever seen anything like that. It took the ASX uh, 200 something like 12 years to make back, well, no, it was 10 years, sorry, to make back its pre GFC high. All right. So a decade to get back to where we were. Uh, after the f- sell-off during the GFC, and now we're talking a matter of months to get back to record highs in the US. It's it's a really different experience. So, uh, yeah, I'm really glad everyone's done so well out of it. But uh, please don't assume that happens every time. <laughs> That's a new one for us. I mean,
0: the, you know, the equity market's been bailed out by the fiscal stimulus package. Essentially, um, if you look at the latest earnings results, um, there's still I think there's 3.3 or, or higher, almost four million people on JobKeeper, um, which Um, And we've seen, you know, Australian companies on the ASX may not like to acknowledge it, um, but essentially that's taxpayer money going into the coffers of of many of these balance sheets of large listed entities. Um, So as you say, there's a limit to which, you know, these support packages to to get the Australian economy over to the other side. Um, We'll start to gradually see that unwinding. And then we will likely see the reaction in, in equity markets and fixed income markets as well as these companies are asked to, to stand on their own two feet a little bit more than they, they have done, say, so over the course of the last six months. And I think that is when we start to see – when the policy measures start to be removed, that's when you'll potentially see, again, uh, the market reaction in an adverse capacity as opposed to the, this run-up in, in prices that we've seen you know, since, since the lows.
1: Yeah. So even though the US has suffered quite severely from COVID, and this is something that we're not talking about a great deal, uh, I remember seeing in the newspaper, I'm sure you did too, that they were estimating 200,000 deaths in the US and thinking, that is horrific. Like how could they possibly allow that to happen? That is horrendous. We're at what 185,000 now. Like it's incredibly close to that number. It was a really uh, surprisingly accurate prediction, which is awful. There've been these really severe economic consequences and including the highest level of unemployment since the Great Depression, markets back to record highs. What do you guys make of that? How are you feeling about that? How are you responding?
0: Yeah, well, the real economy isn't the equity market, right? So whilst the the equity market grabs all the headlines, um, whether that be the the ASX 200 or the S and P 500 or Euro 50 or, or Nasdaq or, or Topics whatever the case may be um, what we the environment that we're operating in the moment at the moment is one that central bank monetary policy is dominating financial assets and in an environment where interest rates are at all time lows central banks have undertaken I think 11 trillion US dollars of, uh, quantitative easing expanded their balance sheets since, uh, since February, for example, uh, you also have an environment where, uh, central banks are buying for the first time high yield, you know, the fed for the first time buying high yield corporate bonds, the bank of Japan owns 50% of the Japanese government bond market, The the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has expanded its quantitative easing program to around 60% of GDP. Our own Reserve Bank of Australia is undertaking yield curve control where they will buy as many government bonds as they need to in order to keep the yield on the three-year government bond at um, 0.25%. A huge amount of monetary stimulus. And this is the central bank playbook. When interest rates get to zero they undertake unconventional monetary policy to cheapen the cost of capital, to punish borrowers, um, sorry, to punish savers at the favour of borrowers. And essentially what they want to do is inflate the value of financial assets so people start to feel wealthier, will go out and consume, aggregate demand increases and inflation will eventually rise. And of course, when aggregate demand increases then uh, eventually businesses start to employ more people as well. So central banks will justify what they're doing at the moment because the counterfactual is so bad. You're You're looking at a depression if we didn't see what the RBA had done or what the Fed had done or what our federal government in terms of fiscal or the US government in terms of fiscal. So make no bones about it. The central banks know what they're doing. This is in their playbook and risk assets have responded accordingly, particularly, um, you know, the really hot tech stocks, for example, um, where what we're going through at the moment has accelerated some of their their dominance in terms of their, their business models as we've all begun consuming online or working online. But that's something that investors have to seriously consider that, you know, to fight what is going on at the moment is an extremely difficult thing to do, this momentum trade, because... If you are trying to fight someone with a printing press, you're you're probably <laughs> going to lose. And central banks around the world, including the RBA, are telling us they're not going to height rates. They might not and you, the experience post GFC, central banks had limited, if any, success in raising interest rates um, globally. The Fed had some some degree of success but are now back to all-time lows again. So for Aussie investors, again, you know for people listening in Australia, you have to consider that cash and fixed income type assets are not going to posit- are not going to generate those positive real returns, you know, accounting for inflation that we've enjoyed over the course of the last decade. And with that in mind, you just see whether it be direct investors, retail investors, wholesale, institutional investors, they just get herded into risky and riskier asset classes in order to generate the total returns, the positive real returns that they once enjoyed from defensive asset classes.
1: Does that scare you?
0: Not really. Um, You know, it is what it is. The central banks, they're they're the referees. You know, they're they're the rule makers. So you can either jump on board or you could obviously, you know, if you are worried about market valuations, um, which are toppy at that sort of index type level, um, you can consider strategies for long-term investing in order to protect yourself against market drawdowns. Um, so, you know, the ultimate way is to retreat into cash. You're not going to lose money in cash. Um, you will lose in real terms, inflation adjusted, but you're not going to lose money and potentially deploy that, look to deploy that at some point in the future if the market sells off 10 15 20%. But make no bones about it. Central banks want higher financial asset prices. They've acknowledged this um, over the course of the last decade in undertaking quantitative easing, and they're going to get them. They're going to get higher financial asset prices. And, of course, they're going to see a higher accumulation of debt. Now, how does this all break? I think that's that's the question, right? Mm. That's, that's the question. Um, and the 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 thing to sort of potentially – hedge against that as I said you can look at cash or you can buy long bonds um, which are uncorrelated to, to equities um, for example or you could potentially look at option strategies like put put options for example on the market um, you know being a large active investment house uh, fidelity International what we think we can do is identify those companies and, and build a, an uncorrelated, portfolio within a fund and identify those companies that are likely to do well in different types of economic scenarios um, whether that be recession or whether that be an eventual um, rotation into into growth growth for the global economy um, reflationary type of trade and that's that's what we're looking at doing because the current environment you've got distinct winners and losers at country levels sector levels and even within companies, for example.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's been one of the most telling outcomes, I think, of this if you're looking at markets is how incredibly positive, dreadful term to use under the circumstances, but how positive the tailwinds have been from COVID and lockdowns and so on for certain types of companies. Zooms a great example where we all learned how to zoom within about twenty four hours because we <laughs> didn't have a choice. So now and then we talk about zooming; it's a verb now. Um, you know, yeah. so yeah. some companies got these extraordinary tailwinds, and others uh, suffered dramatically or just had an acceleration of trends that have been going on for a while. Um, I, I laugh about Bunnings. <laughs> I'm fairly sure that any outbreaks in Australia were going to start at Bunnings because right at the beginning of the lockdowns, you literally couldn't even get into the car park. There were so many people there. um so when you look at West Farmers some parts of their business doing very, very well, despite the fact that we were all supposed to be at home.
0: Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I think there's been surprises for everyone because we haven't been in this type of environment before where we are – it's not a normal recession, right? When it, It's not a business cycle recession. We're being dictated to by a virus as, you know, unfortunately Victorians, you know, our, our fellow citizens know in Victoria, for example, uh, you know, when this virus starts to accelerate again – Authorities put um, these cities back into lockdown and suppression measures uh, start to eventuate. You have the real hit to economic growth. So when you when you ask, you know, am I concerned? I think from a real economy perspective, we are thinking that the world um, gradually grows. Uh, you know, that to use these you know letters um, as analogies for, for economic growth, the profile we may experience a, a more of a U style. Um, I've got no doubts that central banks will generate asset price inflation um, over the long term. So own something, you know, fine wine, art, you know, <laughs> nice say car. say fine wine, not
1: in front of my husband. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you own
0: something, right, over the long run. But um, in the short to medium run, we think that the world will be characterised by these bouts of sell-offs within risk assets, which could provide interesting valuation opportunities to enter into those markets, um, but we are now in a world where, you know, back to Tina, this, there is no alternative. In investors' search for yield, and in that type of environment, for example, the Australian equity market looks compelling. When the ten-year bond, for the Australian Commonwealth government bond yields ninety basis points, and even with dividend cuts that you are going to see from from banks and um, basic materials and things like that, for example, the the Aussie equity market yielding three and a half, and you know, throw franking in on top of that still a compelling investment opportunity when you think of it in a relative sense to other asset classes, for example.
1: I think being explicit about that is really helpful for people. You know, people know it intu- intuitively. They're like, I don't want to be in cash. It's terrible. But I'm worried about the equity market falling. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, it's easy to be worried about everything. But the, uh, the TINA principle is still there, right? It was there a year ago, but it's mm. more compelling now. Where are the parts of the world that you're looking at the moment that you think offer the most compelling opportunities?
0: Yeah. So, well, at a broad asset class level, we are neutral on fixed income. We're neutral cash and we are underweight equities. So it's a pretty conservatively positioned portfolio, right? So this is on a, our tactical asset allocation views, 12 to 18 month basis, um, with a view of eventually deploying that capital into the market. Um, as you say, there are some geopolitical events coming up which may see volatility. Um, we may see disappointment around how policy is implemented from a, a fiscal perspective as well around the globe. Um, we may uh, see the sophisticated hedging strategies um, which are driving markets, you know, option, call, um, option calls, for example, or, or gamma hedging and things like that, may see increased volatility on the downside as well in equity markets so we're pretty conservatively positioned um, we've actually just styled it down our risk within our multi-asset portfolios now within within asset classes in fixed income we're overweight asia high yield we're underweight um, european government debt um, but we have some reflationary trades in there so we're overweight inflation linked government bonds uh, we're overweight um, u.s investment-grade corporate bonds as well. So this is within all within fixed income.
1: So do you want to break down some of those terms for us? So for people who are not familiar with them, um, high yield, be explicit about what that means for people.
0: Yeah. So they're highly levered companies. Um, so they are rated by credit rating agencies. So credit The credit rating agencies will rate a company based on its debt sustainability metrics, Um, so basically looking at the leverage on its balance sheet essentially.
1: How Uh, much debt it's got and whether or not they're going to pay it back. Exactly. (laughs) Much like a
0: a bank would look at an individual before they give them a mortgage Mm. um, and look at, you know, to use the mortgage analogy, you know, look at the LTV, Mm. uh, loan-to-value ratio, similar thing for, for corporates, multinationals. So investment-grade corporate bonds are rated AAA being, you know, the gold standard. We all hear, hear about the AAA rating for the Australian government, for example. Um, well, Microsoft, for example, is a AAA-rated company. Mm-hmm. Um, Apple, you know, a lot of cash on their balance sheets.
1: Mm.
0: Um, down to BBB, uh, which is investment-grade as well. Uh, but obviously more levered than the AAA companies. Once you get to high yield, you, you cross triple B into double B status, mm-hmm. according to the credit rating agencies. So high yield has um, you know, started off with the moniker of junk bonds to give you. <laughs>
1: that was the an, term uh, I was waiting for to an use.
0: understanding, yeah, yeah, back in the 80s, yeah. right? Um, so junk bonds, so highly mm-hmm. levered companies. Um, but increasingly what we're seeing is a proliferance of zombie companies which essentially don't have much hope of repaying their debt. Um, So they're lowly rated high yield companies uh, because uh, they're being kept alive by this ultra low interest rate regime that we find ourselves in. Now, typically when you go from AAA down to high yield, investors demand a premium to lend to those companies. So they get rewarded with a higher yield, essentially high yield bonds, Mm. um, but you take a lot more risk in order to generate that return. So for investors that do their homework, it can be a very um, opportunistic asset class to generate higher returns. But again, what we've seen is a flood of liquidity into high yield markets. Firstly, as central banks like the Fed started buying high yield bonds for the first time in its history, and investors started to get ahead of that trade um, so we've seen high yield spreads narrow um, quite acutely since, um, the, the again, the lows that we've seen in March or or the, the spread widenings that we saw in March. So to bear in mind, high yield tends to be very correlated with equity markets. Um, so if equity markets are falling, then high yield markets are also falling, um, whereas investment grade corporate bonds are much more, um, more closely correlated to government bonds, for example, which tend to be uncorrelated with Risk assets,
1: right. So you've got views on all of those. Yes. Equity markets and geographies for equity markets that you're interested in.
0: Yeah. So I mentioned we're underweight equities Mm -hmm. um, at a a broad based level. So we're underweight US equities. Um, We think that the rally in tech can continue, and we are underweight. We're fueling uh, or we're funding our um, overweight tech in with a underweight in small cap US small cap.
1: Interesting. Why is that?
0: Well, you tend to say uh, a good chart that we have, um, we show the performance of the fang stocks versus the Toothless, uh, which is... uh, (laughs) Toothless. (laughs) So Mm. you've got your S&P 5 Mm. versus um, X5, right? Mm. Um, And what you found is the S&P 5 are up around 60% year-to-date, whereas um, the X5, um, so there's other 495 stocks, are down about 10%. Um, And what you find in in the small cap space, typically these companies, their outlook um, is more highly dependent on the state of the real economy, you know, what we were talking about earlier. Whereas those big tech stocks, you know, they're global companies. Um, so, with that in mind, we think that tech, whether that be in the US or China or Asia, for example, can continue to perform pretty well. Um, and our analysts that are based in Hong Kong and London are reporting to us that there's been no impact at all on the uh, business models of tech companies internationally. And our China-based analysts are saying that they think that COVID disruption will be over by the end of the year for for Chinese companies, for example. So um, we are underweight US. We are basically neutral many regions, including Australia. Uh, We're neutral Europe, neutral UK. Um, But we are overweight EM, emerging market equities, Asian equities, um, and neutral on EMEA, emerging market EMEA, and emerging market Latin America. So, I mean, the danger is reading all these indices at that sort of top-line level, it really masks what's going on within the indices. So the S&P 500, for example, twenty over 20% allocation to tech. Uh, Asia is similar. Asia has around about 20% allocation to tech, whereas EMEA is zero and Latin America is around one and a half. They have a much higher. Um
1: that?
0: So uh, Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa. Right. So...
1: Not an area the most of our investors would have a lot of exposure to. Yeah, well, model. you know,
0: but if so, they have a much higher allocation to basic resources, for example. So if you are looking at this sort of broad-based um, economic growth recovery globally, commodities in that reflationary type of environment will do well. So these regions may eventually do better, and uh, obviously they've been heavily beaten up. Um, you've got a big consensus towards tech, healthcare. And gold at the moment, um, they're the best performing sectors internationally and we additionally in the Australian equity market as well. But if you do start to see any rotation in terms of towards value, um, overgrowth, these are the regions that could particularly, particularly do better in that type of environment. So the overweight in Asia and EM, we think long term, this is really where we're going to see the, the global economic recovery come from. You know, Asia... with talking about those long-term thematics, those trends that have been accelerated because of the experience that we're going through at the moment, China in particular uh, is increasingly moving towards an internal model of demand generation. And I'm sure you've heard anecdotes all over Australia, um, particularly with borders being shut, people are travelling within states. Uh, This is particularly true in China as well. So we've seen a a huge increase in uh, domestic travel within China, again, fueling the demand side of the Chinese economic growth equation. And we think that this is something that this trend will continue going forward, including rising wealth and the dominance of the Asian consumer for decades to come. You're going to continue to see global companies look to the region for their growth. Um, But of course, if you are actually on the ground and get really close to that thematic, that's when you can potentially drive um, much better outcomes for shareholders than, say, diluting through a, a developed market company, for example.:
1: I think that's a really interesting one. Um, and having done a bit of travel in China um, fast, quite some time ago, actually, quite a long time ago. Um, <laughs> um, but you know moving around and realizing that you know it wasn't Western tourism driving most of it. great, well we're very much in the minority, you know, huge uh, local population just exploring what the country had to offer. It's a big country. Any steps that you think Australian investors should be thinking about to protect themselves in the event that a vaccine isn't found or this anticipated recovery takes a bit longer than expected?
0: Yeah, so I wrote a paper um, back in April, I think, about investing in times of crisis or investing in volatile times. And there are a number of strategies that one can put in place in order um, to protect their wealth or minimise the impact of drawdowns. Um, and it's the it's the same old um, things, I think, that we've been talking about in investment markets for a long time. So obviously the, the best thing that an investor can do is diversify. Um, so to have all your exposure in financial assets in a couple of equities on the australian equity market you know that's not diversification right um so diverse you can diversify by obviously company by sector by region by country um and uh that is one way of potentially driving long-term wealth outcomes um but of course the better way to diversify is across asset classes. Um, you know, a good exposure to fixed income equities, you know, look at different areas of fixed income and different areas of, of, of equities. Uh, the other thing you can do is extend your time horizon. So as I said, it's going to be difficult to say what happens before the end of the year, the market might be up, might be down, probably be up because of central bank buying, um, and central bank liquidity, but who really knows? Uh, but long-term, what you tend to find is that bull markets, the duration of bull markets far, are far, far longer than the duration of bear markets. So we may be at the very early stages of a bull market here. Um, and if you think about post-GFC, you're looking at an eight-year, nine-year bull market. And that might be the case here as well. So um, extend your time horizon. But what you tend to find in moments of drawdown and volatility and when the news headlines are screaming, the world is ending, Investors' times, time horizons collapse from "I'm a very long-term investor, very sensible" to "Uh oh, I've just lost 20 percent, sell." Um, so their, their time horizons move from years to days or weeks. Um, so that's something to bear in mind as well. Um, and finally, you know, I, in terms of this debate that investors have in ETFs, um, whether it be passive investing, index investing versus active investment management. Um, I think that in the world that we're in today, you know, it makes a lot of sense to potentially try and identify an active investment manager because, as I said, there are distinct winners and losers from, from this current crisis that we find ourselves in. And identifying those companies that are in beaten up sectors, whether that be oil or tourism or travel, eventually, you know, we will travel again, right? We will get on a plane again. Um, and this is something to consider companies in these sectors that are heavily beaten up are likely to be the best performing companies because they're coming from a low base but when they get to the other side uh, they'll find themselves operating in a world of less competition and a very fertile environment to grow earnings and grow their revenues. So whilst I think that we're in a transformative period right now I don't think that 100% of sales are going to go online and I don't think that we're going to stop traveling. Um, and I don't think that we're going to lose that lust for um, you know, going and experiencing new things as well. So we are seeing some trends be accelerated, but it's not going to be on or off, 100% or zero. I think that having a good mix of diversified um, assets is really a great way to invest at this point in time. So you know, having that uh, as your sort of investment plan you're going to be well-placed to to meet your investment goals over the long run.
1: I like it a lot. Uh, I will say I think we've all learned that uh, we like going into the office more than we realised and many other things like that. You think, oh, it's such a bother to go and do X or Y, but when you're not allowed to anymore, suddenly it becomes much more appealing. Anthony, you guys produce a whole lot of great content and you put a lot of these ideas out in the world, your insights and so on that help investors understand what you're seeing and thinking right across the world. Where do people go to find out more about what you're thinking and seeing?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned at the start, we're a big firm and we have 140 analysts based around the globe. I think 60 or 70 portfolio managers um, and all up around 400 investment professionals yeah, looking at markets day in, day out. And we've put a huge emphasis on transparency and uh, as you say, getting that research to, to our clients or, or anyone that's particularly interested. So, there are a number of ways that you can access that. You know, We've got podcasts, so wherever you find uh, NAB's podcast, NAB Trade's podcast with Gemma, um, you can look <laughs> up Fidelity. One's called Fidelity Answers, which is with our CIOs. Um, but the best way really is to go onto our website. Uh, for example, the latest webcast we did, when this crisis hit, we put five analysts focused on COVID full-time. Um, and it's our COVID working group led by... Uh, a doctor um, who's our healthcare analyst in London and they're looking at the implications of COVID on sovereign balance sheets, on companies, but also on the potential of a vaccine development, et cetera. So we we do these webcasts and then we had a portfolio manager, our, our EM portfolio manager, EM Equities, talking about what the ramifications are for how he was investing and things like that. So go to fidelity.com.au. The webcasts are available um, and you can have a look. And, of course, the white paper that I spoke about earlier um, or generally any investment-related content just to, to learn um about some of the things that we're seeing on the ground, whether that be in Asia, emerging markets or in developed markets. And equivalently, you know, if we love hearing from our clients or, or potential clients. Um, so you, you know, can obviously um, contact us through that um, website as well.
1: Anthony Doyle from Fidelity, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, we absolutely love hearing from you. So if you have any feedback or any questions that you'd like to ask, please just email your suggestions to yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. At please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.